Did you hear that? What? What? That that noise. Was that the horror comedy podcast? With Jake and Haley, Sundays and Wednesdays. The only podcast where we get high and try to scare you and share short, scary stories. Contains marijuana. Keep away from children. It's the Horror Comedy Podcast with Haley. Just kidding, Jake's not here. Uh, So we actually did sit down to record. I don't know if you guys know this about Jake. He actually does not like scary stuff, right? I guess that's kind of the joke. This week he told me he would be willing to cover a true crime case. So I sat down with the case and with Jake and... Yeah, turns out he was not ready. It really much upset him. The recording went off the fucking rails. It's really not salvageable. So rather than make you guys listen to something that I can't even stand listening to, I decided to just record by myself. Yeah, it's gonna be great. I'm doing okay. It's been a crazy ass week at work. This morning, I am smoking some lemon D, lemon diesel. Yeah, it's very good. It's some weed that I lost in February and I just found it just now. (laughs) It's incredible. Oh my God. Imagine how disgusting it would be if you did that with alcohol. Weed is better than alcohol. Goodbye. Thanks for coming to my TED talk. Uh, I mean it though. I wish I had something cool to tell you guys. Pretty much I don't. Detective Stabler is back on Law & Order. Okay, that's really the highlight of my life is seeing Detective Stabler and Detective Olivia Benson reuniting emotionally. Let's get scared. That's really what I'm here to do today. That's what I need. Uh, I actually wrote this episode for March in Women's Month, but uh, I don't know if you guys remember we missed a Sunday episode because our mixer shit out. Uh, um, It completely stopped working. So we had three microphones we couldn't even use. We ended up buying some blue, blue Yetis or something. I can't remember what they're called, like the snowball mics. Hopefully it sounds better too. Uh, If not, I guess let me know and I will cry. Maybe don't let me know. Um, but yeah, so that Sunday that we missed an episode, we did fuck around with this recording and try to make it work. And we ended up using one microphone between the two of us. And then like literally the next day we were able to get a new microphone. We should have just waited. And anyway, by the time I had actually gotten to sat, sit down and tell Jake the whole story, he had heard it like the, f- the first 20 minutes of it, he heard it like 18 times And so the recording was just not it for me. (laughs) It was bad. It sounded, I sounded pissed off. I think I was pissed off. He sounded annoyed. Nobody was shocked. Everybody was over it. So I didn't end up releasing it. And today, since I'm alone, I figured I might as well tell you guys the story. I apologize that there's less humor, less funny reactions, less questions. But uh, you know what? I still want to hang out with you guys and get you an episode. So this is what we're going to do. Have you guys ever seen a clock before? I don't know if you know what it is. You know, a clock. So it's like, uh, you know, circle, numbers painted around it, two hands in the middle. It tells you what time it is, right? So here's this one clock. And I wish I could just show you the picture because you've seen this kind of clock before. It's wooden. There's the actual clock is set in some glass in the center. There's actually spots for keys to go in to turn it to set the time. There's an ornate like 
pendulum that swings and some fancy paintings. The case that holds all of this is ornate, wooden, hand-carved, stained. It looks like some mahogany or something. Honestly, it would probably smell really good. (laughs) Weird. But, uh, you've seen this before. I know you have. It's a really antique clock. It's fancy as fuck. It's actually called a Waterbury clock or this specific one that I'm looking at. It's an antique clock. It sells for a fuckload of money. Let's look it up actually. Oh, I just learned something. The um, actual clock, it's called a, an, uh, a mantle clock. So this one is really interesting because it has all these little numbers, 1 to 31, painted around the outside of it. It actually keeps track of like the date it's called a calendar calendar kitchen clock it's from the 1800s and it's 80 dollars. that's really not that bad um the mantle clocks by waterbury go for 165 dollars, so they're pretty valuable antique if you ever want to see it just look up mantle clock or calendar kitchen clock and it's a waterbury brand so basically waterbury is a clock company up in connecticut You may be familiar with a wristwatch, okay? Maybe you wear one. Maybe you have a smartwatch that, like, fucking shames you because you've been sitting for too long. Not me. I can't live that life. But if you do, good on ya. Uh, but, you know, a watch. A watch. Okay, so the Waterbury Company was really the first company to take the clock off of the mantle and put it on your watch. On your wrist. That's crazy, right? So the Waterbury Clock Company, they've been around for forever since like the 1800s. They have these amazing mantle clocks, kitchen calendar clocks. They're known for their craftsmanship, attention to detail, and I guess what's the word? They last a long time. Classic, to be honest with you. I guess I never thought about the fact that watches weren't always on the mantle. All right. And to be clear, I don't even really have a mantle. Like, I don't have a clock on my mantle or on my kitchen wall. I think that's some rich people shit. But still, I never thought about how we made that transition from like a wall clock to a wristwatch. It's really interesting because the reason I brought them up in this order is because that clock that we talked about, that classic Waterbury clock, it did go through an evolution to end up on the wrist. And bringing those things up in that order kind of represents that change. So it turns out that clocks didn't make their way onto the wrist until World War One. Before that, people used pocket watches, which I forgot was a thing. I've totally bought, like, grandpa a pocket watch when I was a child buying, like, you know, Christmas presents because I was like, wow, this is so cool. But I never thought about the origin of the pocket watch. That's what people used to do. They used to walk around with a clock in their pocket. But in World War I, in the Boer War, B-O-E-R, don't know, Britain started to use the wristwatch instead of the pocket watch because it freed up one hand, which they needed to, like, kill people, like, and check what time it is, you know? Like, they needed both hands and needed to know what time it was. So the perfect solution was the wristwatch, of course, because now they have two can- two killed hands. They know what time it is. If they don't need to know what time it is, it's no big deal. You just ignore it until you need it again. So originally born from utility, women were really the only ones wearing wristwatches back home in America until World War I ended. And then from utility, the wristwatch changed into this fashionable thing. 
Soon it became a status symbol for men, a symbol of bravery, of veterans who had served in the war, and it became a symbol of sweet, sweet cash. So the Waterbury Clock Company in Waterbury, Connecticut was making big, big bank. Like, if there was demand for watches before, if let's say there was like a dial, and if you turned up the dial, it would turn up the demand for wristwatches, and it was like turned all the way down. It was only like dumb little brain women, which I can say because me too. I'm being facetious. Uh... It was all the way down. People were like, oh, women wear watches. That's stupid. And then, like, all these dudes came home wearing these watches, and everyone was like, oh, what? And they turned the dial of wristwatch demand so far up that they ripped it off, stumped on it, lit it on fire, spit on it, kicked it down a hill. Um, Mr. Waterbury was like, oh, my God, the people want watches. This is great. I have a great idea. So let's pretend we're in a board meeting. Okay, and you you are the board member, right? Maybe, you know, you're like, hey, Mr. Waterbury, what's our plan for this year to make a ton of money? And then I'm Mr. Waterbury, and I'm like, hey, so I actually am so glad you asked. Um, first of all, how do you take your coffee? I'll have Suzanne run and get it really quick. Okay, wonderful, thanks. And, uh, this, okay, yes, I am so glad. How are your kids? Okay, so my idea here is let's only hire women. Okay, I know, I know, crazy, hot take, controversial, but hear me out. We can hire the women. We pay them way less. They have small little hands, small little brains. We'll pay them some pennies and they'll be like, this is great. And then we can make even more money. That's a great idea. That's that's what the board member would have said, probably. I don't know what your reaction was, but that was it. So the company put out advertisements looking for women with, quote, nimble fingers, who would be responsible for painting the dials and numbers onto watches in an assembly line. So the company gets all these tiny fingered women in the building and they're like, hey, thanks for coming. Um, you know, you're amazing. I really appreciate you guys. We're going to have a great team. Um, thanks for showing up on time for your orientation. First things first, you know, I just wanted to come out uh, before everything. I'm clearly, I've never like used business jargon, but the bottom line is we're going to pay you eight cents a dial. You get paid by dials that you finish, not by the hour. And eight cents a dial is 105 in today's money. One dollar, five cents. Second thing, second, I need y'all to hurry up because you're getting paid by the dial. Again, eight cents. I don't know if you forgot that. Let me reiterate. But what we need you to do is hurry up. Okay. So I just want to mention that there's people in China who paint these beautiful dishes and it's very delicate, very ornate designs, very intricate. And what they do to save time is they don't dip their brush in the like water, they just lip dip. So they just real quick and they, they like put it in their mouth, they suck it and then check it out. The brush has a pointed edge. Saves you a ton of time. That's what they do in China. Don't do that here though. Okay. Wink, wink. But the women were like, oh my God, so smart. That's great. And the company reassured them that the paint they were using would actually give them glowing health. And it didn't taste any worse than glue. The women did notice something weird, though. When, after a long, hard day of painting watches, they went home after their 12-hour shifts. I'm so curious to how much that would work out, too. Uh, let's look up. So they're tiny little watches, and you have to paint these numbers on them really clear-like. So 
I'm going to say that takes like 10 minutes per, right? So you could probably do like six watches an hour. Um, ba -ba 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 -ba. It doesn't look like they had any workplace regulations about the amount of day uh, hours you could work in one shift and stuff. So let's be generous and say that these women were working 10 hour days. So that's 60 watches per day times eight cents. Oh my God, that can't be right. 60 times 0 0.08, 480 a day, $4.80. Oh my God. That is crazy. 1315 a day in 2021. So if these ladies were working pretty fast and they were making six watches an hour at 10 minutes a watch and they were working 10 hour days, which like, I hope they were only working 10 hour days, they would be making 480 at the end of the day, which translates to 1315 now. Oh my God. Uh, ugh. So when the women left the factory and went home for the night, they'd be you know, taking care of their kids, making dinner, doing whatever. And then they'd finally have time to tuck in and go to bed. And this is 1920s. We're talking like, uh, you know, I love Lucy time. So clearly they slept in separate twin mattresses in the same room. Okay, clearly. But when the lights went out, some of the women began to notice that their mouths were glowing in the dark. I don't know if they freaked out right away and calmed down or what, but they started to kind of have some fun with that during the work day. The paint was called Undark. There's this really cool advertisement actually, and I'll get it pulled up and kind of read it for you, but it says, it's an ad from the newspaper way back when, and it says, Waterbury Clock Company's finest, finest nickel alarm clocks, guaranteed accurate timekeepers. So they have a wasp alarm. It's made of nickel, it's got a two-inch dial, 290. They have a sunrise. That's what it's called. It has a four-inch dial, and it costs 190. And then they have a luminous sunrise, nickel. One time, it's a, it's a four-inch dial, and it glows in the dark. It says under the price, which is 220 if you were wondering, to obtain the best results, the dial should be exposed during the daytime to a bright light and it will be plainly visible in the dark. At night use at a distance suitable to eyesight. So this paint was called Undark and it was really the first glow-in-the-dark paint. It was perfect for clocks because of course you turn off the lights, you could still see it. It was good for any kind of shit that had low visibility. These women had a pretty mellow work schedule, seven days a week. And you know how it is, like, I don't know about y'all, but I've definitely worked a lot before and you got to get your kick somehow. Like maybe you paint a little bit of the paint on your nails. How fun, uh, how fun. You got the little glow in the dark nails now. So funny. Maybe for a prank, you might paint high on the back of your work best friend's shirt. Maybe you'll paint your dress buttons, you know, shit like that. That's what the women were doing there. Amelia Magia was one of seven daughters, and she was an immigrant. When she's 20, she gets a job as a dial painter at the Waterbury factory, and luckily, so do her sisters, Albini and Quinta. Woohoo! Like, sister fun, right? <laughs> In 1921, Amelia was 24, and she was starting to have some problems. She'd only worked, she'd worked there for four years at this point. Her teeth hurt so bad that she would sometimes be unable to function. 
She goes to a dentist, Dr. Joseph Neff, and he helps her out. But on a follow he pulls some of her teeth. But on a follow-up appointment, he realizes that the sockets where her teeth once were did not heal at all. So he tries a bunch of different treatments, but nothing helps. Frances Spletch, Docker, got her first job at the factory on Cherry Street in 1921. It was a really good job for a 17-year-old immigrant at first. These were honestly pretty good jobs for the time because the alternate options were like teaching, waitressing, being a telephone operator. Definitely less creative. I mean, these are jobs that take a toll on you. I've never been a phone operator, but if it's anything like working in a call center, people are fucking mean. <laughs> um, so Frances loved her new job on Cherry Street and she can at the Waterbury Clock Factory, and she continued to love her job well past the point of being new. Until one morning, she woke up and she felt tired. Coffee didn't help. A glass of water didn't help. The walk to work didn't help. She worked all day, and it only made her feel more tired. In fact, she was so tired that she felt weak. She was dizzy, and she experienced shortness of breath when doing any activity. As the week went on, her symptoms only got worse. Her teeth began to hurt, and then her throat, and then her head. In January of 1922, Amelia tries a different doctor. Amelia, who we talked about at first. She goes to a different doctor because now her joints are starting to hurt really bad as well. This doctor says that she has some arthritis. No problem. Take some aspirin. All good. She goes back. Amelia goes back to her dentist, desperate to stop her downward health spiral. Dr. Neff has no answers, but he does realize that her jaw is rotting. In fact, it's so necrotic that he is able to lift fragments of her jaw out of her mouth with his bare hands. Amelia was really fucking scared. She was going to different doctors, going to the dentist. She was, I mean, she was doing everything she was supposed to do. There seemed to be no help. Eventually, a doctor diagnosed her with syphilis, but the treatment for syphilis didn't help her at all. Probably because she didn't have syphilis. She becomes severely anemic and the necrosis from her jaw spreads to the bones of her ears and the roof of her mouth. She dies on September 12th, 1922, at 25 years old. Her cause of death was ulcerative stomatitis, which is a syphilis thing. Again, she probably did not have syphilis. A lot of the women who were painting dials were related or from the same neighborhoods. They were immigrants, a lot of them, and we've kind of talked about that before, how back in the day, and I mean, honestly, still kind of now, a lot of immigrants get pushed into the same corners of the city just because it's, like, safer to be around people who you know aren't going to beat you, you know what I mean? And also, it's like, if apartments on this block are cheaper and you're getting paid shit wages because people don't like your accent, then you can only do what you can do. So we've kind of talked about that before. All the immigrants, a lot of people who worked painting the dials were related from the same neighborhoods, All a lot of immigrants. In 1922, Catherine Schaub, who was an ex-dial painter, she basically watched her co-workers and family around her drop like flies. Her and her cousin, Irene Rudolph, went to the dentist. His name was Dr. James Davidson. And they also saw an oral surgeon, Dr. Walter Berry. They were just trying to figure out what was happening with their failing health. 
Dr. Davidson and Dr. Barry, I'm so sorry, these two uh, ladies, Irene and Catherine, actually worked at a watch factory in New Jersey doing the same work. And I don't, I forgot to mention that, and I didn't even put it in my notes, but I just remembered. Anyway. Oh my god, my dog is snoring. Dr. Davidson and Dr. Barry had seen, had seen a lot of dial painters recently. Two of whom, Hazel Cooser and Margaret Carlo, were very sick. In fact, Marguerite had just died. Hazel wasn't too far from death herself. Irene Rudolph died in 1924 from the jaw infection. By 1925, Frances was in genuine agony. Her skin had turned yellow and pale. She had developed severe anemia, and her mouth pain was so bad, she went to the dentist. The dentist pulled a bad tooth, and a portion of Frances's jaw came out with it. The dentist stopped the procedure because, obviously, this was fucking weird. He tried to treat the damage that had been done, but Frances's mouth continued to rot until she had a clear hole straight through her cheek. You can find artist depictions of this if you ever Google Fossy Jaw. Um, it's pretty awful, and we'll talk a little bit more about what that means, Fossy Jaw, what that means in a second. Francis continued to deteriorate, experiencing such symptoms as soft teeth and spontaneous bone fractures. She died later that year, at 21 years old. By this time, the jaw infections were so common that they got a cute nickname, Jaw Rot. That same year, doctors began to research. They found records of workers who worked in match and firework factories, both of which contained phosphorus. These workers had suffered from something called fossy jaw. Fossy jaw caused rotting teeth, tissue damage that resulted in infection and necrosis, and also caused anemia. So Dr. Davidson, who saw Irene, who we talked about earlier, who unfortunately passed away, Dr. Davidson suspected that Irene had died from phosphate poisoning. Dr. Davidson reported her death to the Newark Department of Health. Since there was an official report, the Department of Health started an investigation. The department did a chemical analysis of the paint and found no phosphorus at all. But the chemist finds that the paint does have radium. This is from the chemist report, quote, Radium has a very violent action on the skin, and it is my, be my belief that the serious condition of the jaw has been caused by the influence of radium. I would suggest that every operator be warned of the dangers of getting this material on the skin or into the system, especially the mouth, end quote. The Department of Health went on to conclude their investigation and determined that neither factory had done anything wrong. They had not violated any laws. They were good to go. No shutdowns, no sanctions. They even deemed the paint formula as safe. Right, so... The factory workers feel like maybe you might be feeling like I'm feeling. Like, how is it safe if it's really bad if it touches you? The factory workers... Okay, so... uh Nobody was... But nobody who was concerned was super satisfied with that. Maybe the paint was safe if you were wearing a fucking, like, hazmat suit, but clearly using this on a day-to-day -day basis seemed to be killing people. 
A second investigation was launched. This time, it was led by a woman named Lenore Young. Lenore Young watched as Hazel Vincent Cooser's condition got worse. Her jaw rot was severe. She had anemia so bad she could barely function. Lenore Young finds a report just published by Public Health Service that says radiation given off by radium is actually very bad. Through further investigation, she found some science that said that radium accumulates in bones and destroys blood cells. So the Department of Public Health gets this information and they're like, okay, skin erosion, changes in blood that result in anemia, all that happens, but there's no problem with that. Just be a little more careful, silly. It's no big deal. Just go to the doctors more. Like that was the official statement from the Department of Public Health. But nobody told that to the factory workers. Even that, which is kind of bullshit and inconsequential, did not get... Nobody was like, hey, they said this pain is actually bad and fucks up everything, so be careful. Nobody mentioned that at all to the factory workers. Instead, the Waterbury Clock Company hired a doctor named Frederick Flynn. He was supposed to be a doctor on site, free and available to these women, give them free exams whenever they want. Oh my God, amazing. Yes, number one. They loved it. He examined the women and he said they were fine. He would order tests, treatments. He would take blood, x-rays. His real specialty, though, was sweeping. Yeah, he kept that floor real clean all right. But the thing is, he didn't use a dustpan to clean up his dirt. He swept it under the rug. That's right. That was his specialty. What the women didn't know is that Dr. Flynn had never been to medical school. He was hired by companies pretty often to cover up poisoning deaths. He continued to examine the women for free. He was officially hired by Waterbury Clock Company in 1925. That same year, Francis died. Another worker named Elizabeth Dunn was on a dance floor doing her thang when her leg spontaneously broke. X-rays revealed tons of small holes in her bones. She died in 1927. At least at that point, Waterbury Clock Company came out and was like, hey, please don't lip dip anymore, dog. We're not giving you a raise, though. In the summer of 1926, Dr. Flynn found two confirmed cases of radium poisoning. He told them each that they were fine. One woman, Catherine Moore, was tested eight times, and each time, Dr. Flynn told her she had not a trace of radium in her. She died from radium poisoning. In December of 1926, Dr. Finn published an article saying, An industrial hazard does not exist in the painting of luminous dials. In 1928, Dr. Flynn found five women with confirmed radium poisoning. He pretended to give a shit, and he finessed the girls into accepting company settlements that would absolve them of liability. The women had no attorneys with them. They were young and probably not great at making decisions because radium had burned holes in their brain. Between 1926 and 1936, Waterbury Clock Company quietly paid out $90,000 for settlement, support, and medical costs for 16 women who had been poisoned by radium. One family received a paltry $43.75 as compensation for the death of their radium girl. 
This is one of my least favorite things about this whole situation. Waterbury Clock Company actually successfully lobbied a change in law, which would make the workman's comp in Connecticut have a short, sh- shorter statute of limitations. So previously, if you found out something bad happened to you because your job lied and exposed you to something, you would have five years to prosecute them in court. Now, because of the lobbying and the new laws that Waterbury helped get passed, they have three years. That's how long you have to discover if you're dying, which is a huge problem because there's no OSHA safety standards. There's no material data sheets. There's nothing to inform you about what you're working with. And number two, it takes more than three years for radium poisoning to show its face. We talked about Frances. It took four years for her. I mean, pretty much all of the women we talked about, it takes about four years for radium poisoning to really show up. In 1927, five dial painters filed a lawsuit against the Radium Corporation for 1.25 mil. The lawsuit sought damages for Quinta McDonald and Albina Larice, who were Amelia Maggia's sisters from the beginning of the story, Grace Fryer, Edna Hussman, and Catherine Schaub, all of whom had been hired by the corporation in 1917 and eventually died from bone cancer. This lawsuit actually gets a lot of media attention, and in the radio, uh, in the newspapers, it's referred to as, quote, the case of five women doomed to die. That's hardcore, right? Publicity from this case also brings a change in the way that people perceive radium. People actually used to think it was, like, good, like healthy, fine, glowing health. We love it. So the women's lawyer, Raymond H. Berry, accused Radium Corporation of the U.S. of poisoning these women with an element that they knew was harmful, which they did not have any safety protocols in place to to protect the women. The suit also went on to say that the corporation purposely withheld information to promote certain use of radium that would work for them. In return, the U.S. Radium Corporation argued that the women had no right to sue. The statute of limitations in New Jersey had already happened. Actually, remember the three years I was talking about in Connecticut? It's two years in New Jersey. The lawyer sees things, Barry sees things a little bit differently than that, though. He says that the statute of limitations is absolutely not over, as the statute of limitations should start from the minute these women learn they're sick. In July of 1927, Barry moves the case to a different court um, that will give him different consideration to the statutes. So the case is supposed to happen in 1928, and meanwhile, Barry gets Amelia Maggia's corpse exhumed. So, big reveal here. Amelia didn't have syphilis. (laughs) She had radium poisoning. Her tissues and her bones were actually so radioactive, it had more than 500 times more radium than what was considered okay. The court, ah, I got chills from that. Ew. Ugh. The court hearing started on January 12th, 1928, and it went on for days. The five women are dead or dying. They're crippled. Their faces are misshapen. Their skeletons are disintegrating. Their jaws are rotted. Some of these women are so frail that they had to be carried to the witness stand. The women still testified. They talked about how they they lip-dipped to get their brushes pointed and how their health went down fast. They had a doctor come and testify 
about his research about radium poisoning. And then one of the people from the company named Arthur Roeder was like under oath on the stand saying, no, I've never seen anybody put a brush in their mouth this whole time. Not at all. So that's cool. So the last person to testify is Catherine Wiley. She gives her testimony about how the Consumers League said, hold up, this is bad for the dial painters. Please, can we get an investigation going? After Wiley's testimony, the U.S. Radium Corporation was like, um, actually, on that note, we have some experts that we want to testify who are not available, who are not available at this time. So can we get this case adjourned till later? And the ra- the lawyer, Barry, he's like, no, these women are dying. They're going to be dead by the time we get the trial adjourned. Like, no. However, the judge is like, ah, fuck it. And he allows for the case to be on ice until September of 1928. So now everyone's fucking pissed. The newspapers are mad. The magazines are mad. The public is mad. The U.S. Radium Corporation and the court system, everyone's mad about this. Okay, so Dr. Frederick Flynn comes to speak to the press. Dr. Flynn tells them that the women might get better if they take proper care of themselves. They could still have long, happy lives. And everyone was like, Dr. Flynn, that's not true. Even Marie Curie was like, that's not true. (laughs) Um, Marie Curie herself actually came forward, offered her sympathy to the women, and told them that she believes there's no hope for them. If Marie Curie says that you have been too far poisoned, then you have been too far poisoned. Okay, this woman's journal glowed in the dark just because of how much she read about this shit. And uh, I don't think there is a more experty expert, okay, with more expertise. She's, if she says you're gone, then you're gone. On June 4th, 1928, they settled the case out of court. The Radium Corporation accepts no responsibility legally at all. Um, But at least the dial painters get paid a little more handsomely than what they did last time. They pay each of the five women uh, $10,000 and an annual pension of $600. They also pay for their medical bills and their lawyers. Um... I'm afraid. <laughs> this is the part where I'd usually ask, hey, Jake, are you afraid? So let me just like do it. I'll do it to myself. Hey, Haley, are you afraid? Haley, thank you for asking. Yes. The answer is yes. I work with chemicals all the time at my job, which are supposed to be safe. And you know, you see those fucking commercials. If you or a loved one has been diagnosed with mesothelioma, uh, and I'm just picture it all the time. <laughs> In 10 years, they're going to be like, if you or a loved one has been sprayed with rescue kennel cleaner, (laughs) I, it does scare me that there's no justice, no peace for these women. A lot of them died horrifically, um, having spontaneous fractures in your bones or your jaw rotting or your head bones rotting painfully. It doesn't really kill you. It just breaks down your body until your body can't go anymore. I think that sounds horrible, and I hate that big corporations and businesses use humans as toilet paper, you know, like they don't care. These women, these 30 women who died from radium poisoning, only what, like 16, maybe 20, I can't remember, I think only 16 or maybe 19 of them got any sort of justice at all. Um, It's really horrifying. I was going to put this out, I did... 
I wanted to cover this case because of Women's Month. <laughs> because of Women's Month. <laughs> and now for the part of the podcast where I tell you a happy story. We're going to try to bring it up, baby. Baby. I'm going to tell you a happy story. We're going to try to laugh, do a thing, lol, whatever. Okay. Some, um, I don't want to read this part. I got to start like halfway through. Okay, here. Matt Llewellyn said he was packing his groceries into his car in the parking lot of an Anchorage, Alaska Costco when Raven swooped in to steal a short rib from his cart, the Anchorage Daily News reported Friday. I literally took 10 steps away and turned around. Two Ravens came down and instantly grabbed one out of the package, ripped it off, and flew away with it. Llewellyn said that the mer- Oh my god. Llewellyn said the piece of meat was about four by seven inches, a sizable meal for a sizable bird. They know what they're doing. It's not their first time, Llewellyn said. They're very fat, so I think they have a whole system here. And once he got back home, he noticed that one of the ravens had taken a poke at another rib, but did not steal it. I cut that meat out and started marinating it, and my wife said, that's gross, we should take it back, Llewellyn said. Costco actually took it back even after we had stated, even after we had started marinating them and gave us a full refund. Oh my god. Additional Raven Thief sightings have emerged on social media. Kimberly Waller wrote on Facebook, My parents were minding their business after going shopping and made it home with one last steak. The bird snatched it right out of the pack in the parking lot. Anchorage resident Tamara Josie replied to Waller's post and referred to the Ravens as calculating. She said Ravens hovered her in an, in an attempt to steal her groceries. I had two Ravens, one that was on the car next to me and kept squawking really loud, Josie said. He would sit on the car and stare at me, then hop next to the bed of the truck on the other side, and he kept going back and forth. The other Raven was on the ground. He kept trying to pull. I had those little mini melons that you have in the mesh baggies. He kept trying to grab the netting and pull the melons off the cart. A raven started to fly in a circle around Josie until she got up, until she got them to scram. He was waiting for another opportunity to grab the melons off the cart, but they never were deterred, she said. They just stayed posted, waiting for their next opportunity to steal something out of my cart. They are very dedicated to their mission, she added. A manager at Anchorage Costco declined to comment to the newspaper about the raven thieves. The Anchorage Audubon Society tallies the raven population every December. The group reported 923 ravens in 2018, 621 in 2019, and 750 in 2020. Rick Sinat, a former wildlife biologist with the State Department of Fish and Game, said hundreds of ravens fly to Anchorage in the winter for food. After the winter turns to spring, most of the ravens leave. Before they do, though, the ravens stick around to pluck assorted meats, fruits, and vegetables. For years, decades, they've watched people in the parking lots of grocery stores with all this food, Sinat said. They know what a piece of fruit looks like in a grocery cart because they've seen it on the ground or in a garbage can. End quote. And that's from an article called Ravens Accused of Stealing Groceries from Alaska Costco Customers by... HuffPost, I guess. I don't know who wrote it, but uh, it was incredible. Thank you. I love that Costco is like the Canadians, the Canada of all grocery stores. And I love that you listened to this. Thank you so much. Thank you for hanging out. I hope you have a great rest of your day. I hope you're feeling strong. I hope you're feeling scared. I hope you take proper safety precautions at your job in case your work is lying to you about the nature of the dangerous chemicals that you are working with. And I hope that you don't forget to drink water. 